0: Imagine, if you will, 15 million people counting on you to do the right thing. Not 1,500 people, though that would be a lot. Not 15,000 people, though that would be overwhelming. But imagine if 15 million people were counting on you to help them. That's the number that... Bible scholar Warren Wiersbe says, probably lived during the time of Esther in the Persian Empire. That's the number of Jews that lived in the Persian Empire during that time. From Ethiopia, all the, or, or from Pakistan all the way to Ethiopia, including the land of Israel, it's estimated 15 million Jews lived in the 127 provinces of the Persian kingdom. 15 million people hoping that somebody will do something to help them. If you look up the word genocide in the dictionary, you'll find this definition. The deliberate and systematic extermination of a national, racial, or cultural group of people. It is the the systematic extermination of a group of people. Now Hitler tried that in Germany, didn't he? More than 6 million Jews were murdered in the concentration camps of the Nazi regime between 1941 and 1945. The Hitler was not the first. There was another man named Haman. He was the Hitler of his day. He tried to exterminate the Jews, not in a four or five year period, he tried to exterminate the Jews in a single day. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4, that's where we are today. And for those of you, perhaps you weren't here last week, you're on vacation, or maybe you're visiting for the first time, let me explain that... We're doing a series through the book of Esther, our summer series through the book of Esther, chapter by chapter. Last week, we were in chapter 3. And in chapter 3 last week, we met a, a new character to the story, a man named Haman. And Haman hated a Jew named Mordecai, and he hated him so much that he decided to do something with his hatred. Haman was the second in command in Persia, very, very powerful man. And so he decided that he would not only kill Mordecai, But he decided he would also kill all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews in the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, approximately 15 million Jews that he wanted to kill. He somehow convinced the king to go along with this. And so this is what we're dealing with when we read chapter 3, verse 5. Just for background, remind us what we did last week. Chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Skip down to verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews young and old women and little children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now imagine, if you will, all of those people counting on you to do something to save them. And think about this. What if your attempt to save them may cost you your life. That's what Esther 4 is all about. Esther is the queen of Persia but she is also a Jew. If there's anyone who can stop Haman's plan and save the Jews, it's Esther. But here's the big issue in Esther chapter 4. What if God placed Esther in the Persian palace for such a time as this? What if the reason there is a Jew as queen of Persia was because God put her there for such a time as this to save the 15 million Jews that are facing extinction? Because remember, it would be from the Jewish line that the Savior of the world would be born. So what if God placed Esther in the palace for such a time as this? But the flip flip side of the coin is this. What if she's killed along with the rest of the Jews? So the question that she has to wrestle with in in Esther chapter 4 is, does she live like the queen of Persia in the comforts of the palace, or does she identify herself with the Jews and try to save them? Now, reading this story from the distance of 2,400 years, it's easy to see what Esther ought to do. But when you're living in the middle of it, those kind of decisions aren't so easy, are they? So let's see how it unfolds. We're in Esther chapter four. Let's read verse 15 just to set the stage for chapter four. Esther 3:15 says, Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. They were just, well, "Come on, let's, they just decided to exterminate a whole nation." And they said, "Let's go have a drink. Let's enjoy ourselves cold-heartedly, callously. And it says, though, but the city of Susa was bewildered." And then we read verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Don't miss that. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he when only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Verse 3, it wasn't just Mordecai doing this. Verse 3, in every province, all 127 provinces across the Persian Empire, in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning, not just mourning, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and, what's that next word, church? And Wailing. And then this note, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. People express their sorrow and mourn in different ways, of course. But in the Western culture in which we live in, we're more subdued in the way that we express our sorrow. In the Western culture in which we live, we usually cry with and compassionately hug and support those who are grieving. I'm going to be doing a funeral this afternoon. And, and probably there, there will be tears shed. There will be compassionate hugs. And that's just kind of the way that we express our sorrow here in the West. But in the East, even to, in today's time, in the East, sorrow is expressed vocally and visibly. Especially in the biblical days. And that's what Mordecai's doing here. Mordecai is expressing his sorrow, his bitterness, his his uh, grieving, he's expressing that visibly and vocally, and he's holding nothing back. And the Bible says he puts on sackcloth. Now, I doubt that you got any of that this week at Old Navy. You probably didn't see any of that on sale at Old Navy this week. So let me tell you what sackcloth is. Sackcloth is a garment that you would wear that was made out of goat's hair. It was very heavy, it was very coarse, very kind of uncomfortable to wear. Uh, It was dark in color, and they would put this on as a sign of of grieving, as a sign of mourning. Not only did they wear the, the sackcloth, they also wore what the Bible says ashes, and here's what that means. They would take the ashes left over from a fire, and they would literally scoop up the ashes and just rub it all over themselves. All over their, their head, their face, their neck, everywhere that was exposed was covered in ashes. And, and the goal was to appear gray in color. Because you're in mourning. You're grieving. You wanted to look like you're mourning. You wanted to look like you're grieving. And if you were really expressing yourself, not only would you wail and weep and vocally and visibly uh, you're, you're doing this, but and you cover yourself in ashes, you would sometimes even lay in the ashes. It's a sign of the depth of your grief, the depth of your mourning. And that's what happened in all the provinces. Verse 3, in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They didn't just wear it, they were laying there grieving. Now Mordecai was a little bit different, wasn't he? Mordecai didn't just lay in the streets and wail. Mordecai took his grief to the king's gate so that he could be seen and heard by somebody in political power. Look in verse two and you'll see that. It says that but he went only as that he was in the street, verse one. He was in the street wailing loudly and bitterly, but he went only, verse 2, as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. It's likely that Mordecai was hoping to capture the attention of the queen. He's there trying to get somebody to pay attention. So he's at the gate, can't go any further than that, but he sure is out there visibly and vocally making his grief known. And it paid off. Look at verse 4 and 5. He got somebody's attention. Verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to, to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. I think the author deliberately wants us to feel the distance here between Esther and Mordecai. He's standing outside the gate of her palace. But socially, they are planets apart. He can't get to her. You say, well, why didn't he just call her? You know, why didn't he text her? Why didn't he email her? It'd be nice if you could have, right? Of course, they didn't have any of that. All he had was was this opportunity to stand at the gate and hope that maybe somebody would tell her what he's doing. Feel the distance between Esther and Mordecai. And isn't it kind of ironic the one who raised her now can't get to her? The one who helped her now can't get help from her? What the... The irony of that is amazing. You see, after five years of living in the palace, Esther is now the buffered, pampered, isolated queen of Persia. She's not just Hadassah, the Jewish little girl that he raised anymore. Now she's Esther. Isolated, pampered, buffered from the rest of the world, queen of Persia. And so Mordecai has to use a go-between, a, a man named Hathach. And, and he tells Hathak, and Hathak goes to tell Esther, and Esther tells Hathak, and Hathak goes back and tells Mordecai. Have you ever been the go-between in a relationship? Yes, yeah, some of you have. It's not a comfortable place to be, is it? You know, you're trying to say, well, you go tell him, well, you go tell her, and you're the, you're the middle person, and that's not a very fun place to be. And I kind of feel sorry for Hathak in this story, because he's getting it from both sides. So here's what happened. Let's follow the story and see. It's very interesting what happens. <clears throat> and I think this delay and relay between Esther and Mordecai just doubles the drama. Verse 6, So Hathek went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation. Notice that word, their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show uh, to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Now, there's so many things there in those few verses that I'd like to dig into, but let me just call your attention to to a couple of them. First of all, he gives this copy of the text to Hathak, and he says, I want you to give this to the queen. I want her to see it for herself. I want her to read this, and, and don't just show her. Then he says, explain it to her. You take the time to make sure she understands what this means. We're talking about the annihilation of a whole group of people. The annihilation of all the Jews. Make sure you show her. Make sure that you explain it to her. Then he says, then urge her to go see the king. And Then, did you see the little bomb he dropped at the end? The end of verse 8. Look what he says. In the middle of the verse, he told them to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Her people. Esther's superficial palace life is about to be shattered. I, I bet Hathak was, when he heard this, her people, he thought, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't you mean the Jews? Yeah, Her people. Her people. I thought she's this is Queen Esther. She's the Queen of Persia. But she's also a Jew. And you tell her, you remind her about her people. Path turns to go back to Esther, and in his mind probably he's trying to figure out how in the world is the Queen of Persia a Jew? So he's trying to process all of this. and and, Oh, before we read anything else, let me remind you of something else. Remember it was Mordecai who told Esther, don't you tell anybody that you're a Jew? Let me remind you. Go to chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Verse 20, chapter 2. But Esther had kept her secret I'm sorry, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Mordecai was the one telling Esther, now don't don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. And now, here's Mordecai divulging that the queen of Persia is really a Jew from Israel. So he told them to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Verse 9. Hethak went back, reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. I, I bet he was kind of reluctant to share that, don't you? Verse 10. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All right, well, you tell him this. Verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal providence know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and to spare his life. For 30 de- but 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. Now here's the situation, although the king was her husband, Esther couldn't just stroll into the office one day and say, let me tell you what I'm thinking, I got a question for you. She, she, she didn't have that privilege just to go into his presence anytime she wanted to. That's hard for us to imagine, but that's the way it was. The king was, was isolated more than any person in the Persian kingdom, and nobody came into his presence unless he wanted them there. And the way that he made it known that he wanted them there was to call for them to come into his presence. And if somebody came into the throne room and he had not called for them, the law stated they would be killed immediately on the spot. And the only exception to that is, if the king for some reason decided he wanted to have a conversation with that person, he could extend the golden scepter and that person could touch the golden scepter and their life would be spared. And so, here's what Esther says. She says, you go back and tell Mordecai, Everybody in the province knows about this. Everybody knows the rule. Everybody knows the way that the king rolls. Everybody knows that if I go into the palace unannounced, uninvited, it's probably going to be the end of me. Mordecai should know this, but you be sure and tell him that. And then she drops this little bomb. Oh, by the way, it's been 30 days since the king has invited me into his presence. So if we're waiting on him to invite me, probably going to be a while. It makes you wonder, they've been married now for five years. Has the spark gone out? Has he lost interest? Has Xerxes found another beauty queen somewhere? Because Esther says, oh, by the way, it's been 30 days since he invited me into his presence. The stage is set. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he was ticked off. You don't see that in the text. I'm reading between the lines there. That's in the Hebrew. (laughs) Not really. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. He says, okay, you go back and you tell her this. And here's his answer. It's not very pleasant. Here's his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Wow. Just don't think that, hey... Don't think, Esther, don't think because you're in the palace you're going to be spared. Let me remind you something, honey. You're a Jew. and One day they'll find out you're a Jew, and when they decide to kill all the Jews, they're going to kill you too. And oh, by the way, if God brings somebody else, because God doesn't need you and He doesn't need me, if God brings somebody else to deliver the Jews, guess what? He won't spare you. You know know what Mordecai was saying? Mordecai was saying, this is the way I see it. You might be killed if you go into the king's presence. But if you don't, you will be killed. God will see to it. Now have a good day. Wow. Your life may be in jeopardy if you go to the king uninvited, but... Your doom is certain if you don't. That's what he's saying. And then we come to the second half of verse 14. And this is the part of Esther that you know, if you know anything about the book, it's the most famous part of the book. And it's a much more positive message. And this is what he says. And who knows? But you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Here's what he was saying. Esther, what if you were born for this moment? I mean, just think about it. Think of how unlikely it is, Esther, that you're queen of Persia. How do you explain that, Esther? I mean, just think about this. Remember when all the Jews were allowed to go from Persia back home? Why is it that we stayed? And about that same time, isn't it interesting, isn't it a coincidence that about that same time that Vashti was deposed, removed as queen, and Remember that day when some of the king's men saw you walking down the street and, and they said that the king would like to have you in his harem? And How do you explain that connection? And, and then when you went into the king's harem, you remember that eunuch that just you found favor with him and he took special care of you? And, and just think about the way that you were treated and the beauty treatments that you got and all that stuff. And, and then can you explain, Esther, how out of three or four hundred beautiful women, You're the one the king decided on. I mean, just think about it, Esther. How is it that an orphaned Jewish lady is queen of Persia at the exact time when the Jews are about to be exterminated? Could it be? Could it be that maybe you were brought to this place for this purpose? For such a time as this? Esther found herself in one of those defining moments, didn't she? Those defining moments in life. Would she identify herself as one of God's covenant people, or would she continue to live as a pagan in the king's palace in Persia? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 15. She comes to this defining moment. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. All right, you go back and tell him this. Who gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. I told you in the first message, God's not mentioned in this book, but it is implied in various places. And here's one of those places. They weren't just saying, I don't think, fast, because fast, going without food is not going to do a whole lot of good to change anything. But fasting to God and praying to God, that's what they're talking about here. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Is that a great answer or what? Keep in mind, she's only had a brief slice of time to figure this out. She only had a small window of time to figure out what she's going to do and how she's going to respond. But she's determined to make a difference no matter what the consequences to her personally. And she declares, if I perish, I perish. I love Chuck Swindoll's comment about this. He said, the softness of the palace became uncomfortable for Esther. The softness of the palace became uncomfortable when she realized what was at stake and her people would be exterminated. Now, there's two primary principles that arise from this passage I want to give you as we close. I've got about five minutes here. I want you to write down some things real quickly. Two primary principles. Here's the first one. There are defining moments when you have to decide who you really are. Esther had to decide if she was a Jew or a Persian queen. And we all face those defining moments, don't we? defining moments when we have to decide who we really are. You have to decide sometime if you're a Christian or not. When you're faced with that opposition at work and you're you're tempted to compromise your standards and your ethics and all of that kind of thing, you have to decide, that defining moment, you have to decide who you really are. Are you a Christian or not? When you're faced with temptations and opportunities that... That could take you down the wrong path, you have to decide, don't you, who you really are? Are you a Christian? Or not? Are you going to identify yourself as God 's people? Or are you going to go along with the pagan crowd, those who don't know God? I want to tell you something about those moments, those defining moments. they're not easy. They're very, very difficult. But Alistair Begg had it right when he said, There is no such thing as secret discipleship. Either secrecy will destroy the discipleship, or the the discipleship will destroy the secrecy. Just defining moments when you have to make it known who you are, what you stand for, what you believe, how you're going to live. There are defining moments that set the course for the rest of your life. When you have to decide who you really are. Lesson number two is this. I love this. God positions us in strategic places for His strategic purposes. Esther, what if you were born for this? What if you were placed here for this very reason? What if you're not here by accident or chance? What if God placed you here? And We have to decide. If we're going to make a difference with our lives, regardless of the consequences. Esther had to say, if I perish, I perish. Whatever the consequences, I believe God has strategically placed me here. And you have to face those same kind of decisions. Because sometimes when you decide to identify with God's people, when you decide to identify as a Christian, it will cost you. Especially, ladies and gentlemen, in the world in which we are living, it's going to cost you more and more. We sometimes have to overcome ourselves in order to be used by God. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Personal confession. I can talk myself out of a lot of things. I really can. I'm pretty good at talking myself out of things. Especially if it's going to cost me. I can rationalize. I can justify. I can talk about later. I I can talk myself out of anything... Sometimes we have to overcome ourselves in order to do what God has positioned us to do. You may have to change your thinking or maybe even change your praying from God bless me to God use me. Now now listen, listen. I like God bless me. I like that. God bless me is fun. God bless me is wonderful. God bless me is about me. God use me. That's a totally different story, isn't it? God use me is about Him, and it's about them who don't know Him. God use me is challenging. God use me is scary. God use me might cost me. But when you come to those defining moments, you have to decide, am I going to make a difference with my life? One of the things you may have to start praying is stop praying, God bless me, and start praying, God use me, regardless of the consequences. You just need to be sure to take advantage of where God has you. God has placed you where you are. He has raised you up where you are. You are to be the person to share the gospel in this moment, right where you are. He's positioned you to advance His redemptive plan right where you are. You're not there by accident. You're there by providence. Say, Keith, are you sure about that? Just listen. You might want to write these down. I'll just quote you the verses. Just listen to what they say. Ecclesiastes 2, or I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 3 2 says this. It says, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now I've got a question for you. Everybody look this way. I've got a question for you. Who do you suppose determines that time? God does. It's a time to be born and a time to die. Guess who determines that? God does. You know having any say so on when you're going to be born. God decided that. Could it be that you're born in this time? Because God is positioning you to be about His redemptive plan, His purpose. Why weren't you born in 1941? Why weren't you born in 1700s? Why weren't you, bo- why weren't you born in 1928? You know, Some of you say, well, I was born in 1928. <laughs> <laughs> 1728, how's that? Here's my, here's my, my point is this. God has positioned you to be alive right now. He positions us strategically for His plan. And then I want you to listen to this verse, Acts 17, 26. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And listen to this. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. What if, ladies and gentlemen, God has positioned you not only for the time in which you're living, but the place in which you're living? What if you're not here by accident, but you're here by providence? What if you're part of God's redemptive plan, and God's placed you here at this time, at this place, to further His kingdom? That's why it's a defining moment. Because you have to decide if it's about you or if it's about Him. you have to decide, is it God bless me? Or is it God use me? God, have you really positioned me here at this time in history, at this place, for your kingdom? And the book of Esther says, yes. If he could position an orphaned Jewish girl to become queen of Persia, he can position you Where you are. For his plan. For his purpose. For his glory. Let's live for him. Let's let this be a defining moment. Let's decide. What do you want? Even if it costs me. Let's pray about that. Father, thank You for loving us, and indeed You have blessed us. But we would pray that You would also use us. I pray for those men and women, those teenagers here today, who are perhaps struggling with a defining moment, whether or not to truly identify themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. Facing that decision of of trying to decide who they really are, And I pray that today there would be absolute surrender, absolute obedience and saying, I am a follower of Jesus, and from this day forward, I will live like it. Even if it costs me. And as we do that, may we be about your kingdom and your purpose. May you accomplish your plan in and through our lives, and I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.